Well, greetings again. Uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been um, one very unusual week uh, since we last uh, gathered here, as it were, together uh, virtually. Uh, I'd like to address uh, Little Theologians uh, initially this morning and ask if you would draw or color a pretty picture. Uh, I know this week you've seen, since last Sunday's tornado, you have seen some ugly scenes, some smashed cars, some fallen trees, some severely damaged homes, a lot of debris. But I want you to think of a pretty picture, perhaps uh, wildflowers in a meadow, uh, mountains, waterfall, sunset, uh, sailboat on a sea, and draw one of those pretty pictures uh, as we look uh, today, continuing uh, Pastor Jones' reading in Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, continuing there in verse 19. So the two of them went on, that is Naomi and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, And Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. May the Lord help us. May the Lord help us to understand this is word. In the scriptures, uh, God has various ways of teaching his people. The key and central lessons that he would have them learn. There are various ways that he brings his people as they read the scriptures to understand the truth of his grace, the truth of his gospel. One of the more obvious ways is in the text that make simple propositional statements about God's grace. You might, for example, think about uh, the kind of thing that is said in John 3.16, which tells us about the marvel, uh, the marvel of God's grace in sending his son to be our savior. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall never perish, but have everlasting life. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. Uh, 
And there are many statements, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in which God states simply and clearly the things that we need to know about his grace and his saving power. And then there are other ways in which God explains to us what he wants us to know about him. Um, For example, in the book of Revelation, he tells us much about himself and what we're to know about him and his purposes much as a parent would teach their younger children largely by means of a picture book. And a parent might open that book, and as they're reading and pointing out, do you see this? Do you see this? Do you see this? Color pictures and types and symbols of his power, of his majesty, of his victory. And says again, as a parent would to a child, do you see this? Do you see this? And he intends us to understand from these wonderful word pictures something of his majesty and the sovereignty of his power and his plan. But then there's at least one other way that God brings his people to see the truth of his character and the marvels of his grace. And that is by means of biographies that are recorded in the scriptures. And what he's doing in the course of these biographies is taking those same truths that he has presented in simple, straightforward statements or in figurative language and showing us what that looks like in the life of an individual believer. He might show us, for example, a picture of his patience with his people, like the way our Lord Jesus uh, dealt with Simon Peter so patiently and teaching him and working in his life. Or he might show us a picture of his sovereign power in the life of some individual as he has gloriously redeemed and rescued them from weakness and from bondage. And what the Lord is doing so often in the stories of men and women in the Bible is writing in large letters. And some of us in our ages, we need large letters. We need that large print. But he's writing in large letters the things that we need to know if we're really to know God in his grace. And so this morning, I want us to look at the life of Ruth and to see this pretty picture, this glorious portrait um, in Ruth chapter 1. I'd like to uh, remember that Ruth is being, uh, look at um, uh, Ruth uh, 1 verses 16 and 17. Pastor Jones read this earlier. Remember that Ruth is being warned or, or is being urged by her mother-in-law Naomi to go back to her own country, to go back to her false religion, to go back to her own people. And Ruth, and Ruth, uh, um, and Ruth. Ah, here we are. And Ruth says this. 
Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, you're probably familiar with those words, as I am, as we've seen the parts of this passage in, in various places, from titles of articles and books on romance to vows that are exchanged in wedding ceremonies. So even outside of its biblical usage, others who have used phrases in this passage here in Ruth recognize that what's being said here is an expression of human devotion, of commitment, a pledge, if you will, between one person and another. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you live, I will live. Your people, my people. Uh, may death only separate us. But if that is all we saw in these words, I believe almost completely we would misunderstand what is happening to Ruth when she spoke them. Because as we'll see, these words are not so much an expression of human devotion as they are a description of spiritual conversion. Not merely an expression of Ruth's love for Naomi, but an expression, indeed, the very first expression of Ruth's newfound saving faith. Because really, this first chapter of, of Ruth is one of the most detailed accounts of how God brings his saving faith, his saving grace, to bear on some people, and how he brought it to bear on the life of this young lady from Moab, whose name was Ruth. One of the ways that we know that this is the case is because of what people began to talk about in Bethlehem when these two women returned. What do you think uh, they began to talk about? What was the lasting impression that Ruth makes upon the people in Bethlehem? It's interesting that all the people were talking about it, men, women, even the bachelors. Because when in chapter 2... Verse 11 and 12, Ruth meets the man she is eventually going to marry. The thing that he has heard about her is this. He has heard what she has done for her mother-in-law there in verse 11. And then notice what he says in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And if you know the language of the Bible, you'll know that this is a phrase that recurs in the Bible. And what it means is that someone has taken refuge uh, under the wings of the God of Israel to be their Savior. It is a description of what it means for someone to have God as their Savior. It means to have come under the wings of the Almighty in order to be sheltered 
from his judgment. And the thing that Boaz is especially rejoicing in that has happened to, to Ruth is that although she has been brought up in a pagan country, in a pagan house, distant from the message of the grace of God, in some marvelous way, God has reached into her life and touched her with his saving grace and brought her to, him, brought her to himself and is sheltering her under his saving and sheltering wings. And the question I want to pose and, and seek to answer from this chapter is this, how on earth? Did God's grace work in her life to bring her so wonderfully into this rich experience of God's salvation? And if we're going to trace the answer to that question, we need to notice here several things. And the first is like every spiritual experience, like yours, like mine, whether we realize it cognitively or not, Ruth's conversion, her experience of God's grace began, first of all, in the purposes of God himself, way, way back in God's glorious, eternal deliberations. He had a plan. He had a purpose for you, for me. He had a plan. He had a purpose for Ruth. And as we read through chapter 1, something a little unusual may have struck you. Although the book bears the name Ruth, the first chapter largely is about Naomi. This chapter uh, that most people are familiar with, it's a little strange that, a book, that the book is not named Naomi. Um, the story seems, at least at uh, first sight, the focus, the attention on what uh, is on what has happened to Naomi. Uh, Ruth seems rather incidental. And you remember what it was that happened to Naomi. She and her family lived in the days when God was sending warning signals, if it were, as a ship firing over another ship. Warning signals God was sending to his people. These were the days of the judges. When we're told in the last verse of the previous book, the book of Judges, uh, that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. There was this uh, sense of uh, decadence and moral and spiritual anarchy. And in order to try and rein the people in, God had sent physical judgment. He had sent physical judgment on the land. He had sent a famine. And in the Old Testament, uh, when, the, when famines came, often it was understood as a sign of God's displeasure with his people, a warning sign, a shot across the bow, if you will, for them to turn back from their sinfulness, for them to turn back to God, to seek his blessing, to seek his face, and to live in faithfulness to his covenant. But instead, this little family of Elimelech's said in essence to God, if you're not going to give us the material blessings we want, 
then we'll go elsewhere and we'll find our own material blessings. If you, Lord, won't give us what we want, then we, Lord, will go and take what we need. And so this Israelite family left the one place on earth in which God had promised to bless his people and to keep and to provide for them. And instead of turning back to him in repentance, they turned away literally in rebellion. And the language of the text uh, in Ruth uh, chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that they went, uh, were only going there for a little while, uh, sojourning. But in verse 4, we read that they're 10 years there, rooted, established. And what happened was that they had essentially turned their backs on God and upon and gone their own way. And then as Naomi discovered, they found themselves facing a catalog of disaster and sorrow. First, the husband died. Second, the boys married unbelieving women. And then one son died and another son died. And here Naomi is in a foreign place, destitute. And Naomi, uh, uh, and here was uh, Naomi as as it says at the end of the chapter that she went away full, full of her plans, full of the provision of a husband, full of the expectations of what her boys, her sons might turn out to be. And it looks as, as though she began to understand that almost systematically everything on which she had depended in order to provide for her blessing was taken one by one out of her life. And it would be a bold person who would say that it was God who had done this. But Naomi herself says that this was something in God's mysterious purposes that God himself had done and it allowed to be done. Painfully, she came to see this. When Naomi was brought down to her lowest point, when all human support and resources were apparently taken from her, when she had reached that turning point where she was either going to be confirmed, as it were, in her rebellion or she would cast herself back upon the Lord and ask for his forgiveness and return to his people and return to the land where he had promised to give blessing and to the city where she would find fellowship with other believing men and women. The marvelous thing is that it was the latter and not the former that she did, that God's grace had so worked in Naomi's heart as God's providence had worked in her circumstances, that instead of now turning against him with a bitter grievance, out of the pain of her experience, she turned to him in order to find restoration and blessing and salvation for herself. And here's the point. Please don't miss this. It was almost at the very moment 
that that began to happen, that God reached through her life and touched the life of Ruth and began to draw Ruth into his kingdom of grace. The great thing about this opening chapter, I believe, and why the book carries the name Ruth instead of Naomi is for this reason. Everything that God was doing in the life of Naomi, he was doing purposefully in order that he might reach through her life in order to bring Ruth to himself. And that's a great lesson for so many of us, that the work of God's grace in my life almost certainly began with the work of God's providence in someone else's life. I think that's true for so many of us, so many of us here this morning, listening, professing believers. If asked what was the first really significant spiritual influence on your lives, we might say, I saw that God had done something in someone else's life, and I desired the same. I felt I needed that. I know that was true of me as a college student. I saw others and what they had I wanted. But we see another application here as well. Some of us may be going through troubled times. Certainly this is a troubled time. Dark and deep matters that causes us to cry out to God painfully, Lord, why are you bringing me through this? Why so much heartache? Why so much agony? And perhaps the purpose is this, that God is making gaps, humanly speaking, in your life in order that he may move through those gaps and touch and bring others to himself. And there's another possibility. It is that whatever the grace of God really means, you may have never experienced it, but what you have begun to notice, perhaps in someone who has gone through difficult times and you haven't been able to stop yourself admiring the faith they've had and the grace that seems to be so evident in them and the fact that they have something that you just don't have and you wonder why it is that someone with faith like that needs to go through the experiences like this. And the truth of the answer is, it's because of you. The Lord is wanting to do in you, through your friend, the very thing that he had done in Ruth through his mother-in-law, Naomi. And so this story is a great and beautiful picture of the fact that God's saving grace always begins in God's deep, perfect, profound purposes. But a second thing that we might learn from the passage is that God's saving grace not only begins in his sovereign purposes, but it 
invariably is confirmed in a personal covenant. Let me say that again because it may not be quite as obvious in this case. God's saving grace is always confirmed, always sealed in a personal covenant. That's what these words are in verse 16 and 17. There is something about these words that should strike you as familiar especially covenant Presbyterian people. This should awaken your memory. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. You've heard this before. You've heard this phrasing, this this formula in other places in Scripture. These are the words that God is frequently using in the Old Testament. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will be your God. You will be my people. And these are the words so often used when God comes into a saving relationship with his people, when God binds his people to himself as their savior in what the Old Testament calls a covenant, a bond, uh, sometimes uh, uh, synonymous with a pact, a compact, a promise. He binds his people to himself in order not only that they might belong to him, but that he might save them and keep them. Do you see then what Ruth is saying? Do you see what she's begun to discover, obviously, from the things, perhaps the stories she may have heard from Naomi or or her late husband or her father-in-law, the stories of God's dealings with his covenant people? Like the Exodus, how God said, these are my people. I will be their God. I will deliver them. I will keep them. They are mine. Do you see that now what Ruth is saying to Naomi, how tremblingly, how embarrassed the wording may be because of her lack of knowledge or or eloquence or articulation. She says, Naomi, I'm going with you and I want to be with you. But the really significant thing that is, I just don't want to be with you. The God who has said, you will be my people and I will be your God. Naomi, I have said to him, Lord, I want you to be my Savior God as well. And I want your people to be my people. And you see the implication of that. They are that God has worked in her life. And God has bonded her to himself. And now for the very first time in her life, Ruth is sharing her testimony. She's sharing her testimony to what the grace of God has done in in her life. And the two central things that God's grace has done in her life is that it has enabled her to say, you are my God. And secondly, to say to other believing people, although she perhaps only knows one on the face of the earth, Your people are my people too. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. And that's one of the greatest evidences 
that God's grace has begun to work in our lives. When we identify with other believers in Christ as our brothers, as our sisters, that may be one of the most difficult parts of this season in our lives. We are united to the Lord Jesus Christ through grace by faith. And we are united to one another as members of his body. We have that communion of the saints. Our lives are intertwined. And yet, we're going through separation. There's six of us here this morning. We long to be with God's people because God has changed our heart to love other believers as brothers and sisters. We long for that day when we'll gather again physically. That communion is spiritually and inviolable. We will always be connected through Christ. But physically, we want to be get together. We want to share our lives together. We want to receive your gifts. We want to be able to exercise our gifts in community with one another. And that is one of the great evidence of God's regenerating grace in the life of a believer. Ruth had given herself to the Lord without reservation, without limitation. She recognizes that as she casts herself on the Lord, and as she leaves the only country she's ever known, she may lose a lot. And yet the wonderful thing about this book is the story goes on. Uh, it is as if almost everything that Ruth was prepared, humanly speaking, to give up in order to hold on to the Lord, to take refuge under his wings, the Lord said to her, yes, Ruth, you're not only going to have me, but you're going to have all those blessings with me. And that's so reminiscent of the Lord Jesus' words in Matthew 19, verse 29, when his disciples said, Lord, we've, we've left everything and followed you. What about us? Jesus says, my disciples, each one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And there isn't a Christian with much spiritual experience who isn't able to testify to the truth of that. Everything that we lay at his feet, God graciously pours back to us in his own extraordinary ways. And that brings us to the third thing that we ought to notice about this story of Ruth and her conversion. If her experience of God's saving grace began in the purposes of God and was confirmed in her covenant with God, it unfolds 
in untold blessing from God. Do you see the great thing that God was doing? Here was the pain of Naomi's life, and yet out of this difficult providence came the saving grace that Ruth experienced. And in a sense, if all, if that was all that we had in Ruth, in the book of Ruth, in the first chapter, we would go away rejoicing in the marvels of God's grace. And even if we had a few more chapters and were able to read of Ruth's uh, subsequent marriage uh, to Boaz and the birth of their son, we would say, how much more marvelous is God's grace Not only does he give us his saving grace, but he provides us with all kinds of blessings in our lives. But the really important verses of Ruth we don't find until the closing verses, and they are the words we could sort of easily ignore or run past there in in Ruth chapter 4. In Ruth chapter 4. Because what we have there at the end of the book of Ruth is a genealogy. And this book, which is sometimes called the greatest short story and the greatest romance story that has ever been written, ends almost anticlimactically. That's a word. It ends as an anticlimax with a family tree. But look at whose family tree it is. Verses 18 through 22 of Ruth chapter 4. But these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, Ruth's husband. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And it's only when you come to those last lines of this book that you have any way of knowing what God was really doing, any way of understanding why things grew so dark for Naomi. It is, what, uh, it is that God was so determined to reach through Naomi into Ruth's life Because what God was planning was not just Ruth's conversion or Ruth's blessing or Naomi's restoration. He was seeing far into the future of his purposes and his kingdom in this world. He was seeing as far as great King David. He had set his heart upon Ruth in order that he might be, in order that she might be this ancestor who experienced so much grace, pagan girl though she was, in order that into David's family line there might come this tremendous story of the saving grace of God. That's what God was doing. That's why Naomi's life was so dark. That's why Ruth's conversion so wonderful. Because, because God planned to bless future generations. But this family tree at the end of Ruth 
is something you've seen elsewhere in the Bible. If you turn in your Bibles through the Old Testament until you reach that blank page that separates the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you turn one more page to Matthew chapter 1, you'll see the family tree of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice there in verses 4, 5, and 6, Matthew 1, verses 4, 5, and 6, it's the same family tree that's recorded in Ruth chapter 4. So it's only when you get back, back past that blank page and into the New Testament, the new covenant that God is making with his people, interestingly enough, again, in Bethlehem that you'll be able to stand back and turn all the pages between Ruth and Matthew and say, now I think I understand. I think I understand what God was really doing. He had his eyes set on blessing his people through King David by bringing Ruth, his great-grandmother, into his kingdom. Yet he had something far, far, far greater in mind. He had in mind that he would bring salvation to men and women and boys and girls like you and like me through Jesus Christ by bringing Ruth into his family tree by his saving grace. Oh, what a glorious picture of God's gracious dealings. Amazing grace, amazing grace. Let's pray. Lord, please seal to our hearts these truths. And to you alone, to you alone, gracious God, be all honor, glory, and blessing. Amen.